Thank you for listening to this sermon from Christ Our Savior Baptist Church. There were some issues with our audio recording during this message, so the first half is less loud than it should be, but it does correct about halfway through. Again, thanks for listening. You can find more of our sermons by going to ChristOurSavior.Church. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. This morning we'll be looking at that familiar passage at the end of this gospel, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, that we know as the Great Commission. Kids, you can find that on page 835 in the Bibles that we've given you. Listen to God's word from Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. This morning we come to the end of Matthew's Gospel. The last two chapters have recorded for us the crucifixion of Jesus and then the resurrection of Jesus. We saw last week how Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to the woman. and He told them to go and tell his brothers to go to Galilee to meet him. And here as we begin, we see them doing that, going to Galilee to meet Jesus. The, re- the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, they are the crucial facts of the Christian faith. The reason that sinful people can have hope in the face of a holy and righteous God is because Jesus died and rose again. It's because of these things that have happened back in Jerusalem. So when we share the gospel as Christians, the main part of what we're sharing is this news about what Jesus accomplished. He died and he rose again. But even though the the substance of the gospel are these facts of what Jesus did, there is actually more to the gospel than that. The gospel is not just the bare facts, but it's also the meaning of those facts. Mm. So it's not just that Jesus died and rose again, it's that Jesus died and rose again so that people could be forgiven. Mm. He died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins, for the salvation of We might call this the doctrine that surrounds these facts, the doctrinal truth that explains and interprets the facts of what Jesus did. And the final part of the gospel that's not summarized just by the facts is that the the gospel is news that demands a response. So to preach the gospel is not just telling somebody some information. So if I tell you that the Astros' first baseman, Yuli Gurriel, is hitting 338 this season, and that his nickname is La Pina. That information <laughs> does not demand any response from you. You are free to stare at me blankly and walk away. The gospel is not like that. It is not just information. Amen. The gospel 
is the power of God to save sinners, as we just read from Romans chapter 1. The gospel is an announcement to people like us who were enslaved to sin and who were condemned to death that we can have forgiveness of sin by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. So the gospel makes a demand. It has a command associated with it. Repent and believe. That's part of the gospel. We see here in our text that the gospel, as it comes in this, in this powerful way, with this powerful proclamation, that the gospel transforms people. The gospel creates something as it goes. The gospel creates the people of God. And so the gospel turns sinners into worshipers. And then it makes these worshipers ambassadors of the gospel. Mm -hmm. This powerful gospel transforms. In Matthew's gospel, he's told us the facts of Jesus' death and resurrection. And today he's going to show us the beginnings of this transformation that the gospel brings. We'll see that these disciples who had just a few days before abandoned Christ, now obediently come to the place Christ has told them to come, they bow down and worship him. We'll also see these disciples, again, these, these fearful, betrayed disciples commissioned as ambassadors of the gospel. But most of all, what we see in Matthew chapter 28, in these last few verses, is we see Jesus in all of his glory, in his risen power. You see, the gospel is the gospel of the living Christ the living Christ who reigns as king. And the gospel confronts us, it confronts every person with the fact that we must do business with Jesus who was crucified and risen and who now is the ruler over all things. The gospel confronts us with the question, how do we respond to Jesus crucified, risen, and reigning? This morning, I want us to look at three truths about the risen Christ from this passage. And with each truth about Jesus, we'll also look at some, some corresponding definitions of what a disciple is. So as we see who Jesus is, we really understand who we are. As we see who Jesus is and how he sends his people in this passage, we'll see what a disciple is as well. So here are the three truths, these three statements about Jesus that we'll kind of organize our time this morning. First, we see that King Jesus rules over everything. King Jesus rules over everything. Second, we see that King Jesus sends his people. King Jesus sends his people. And then finally, we'll see that King Jesus is with his people. King Jesus is with his people. So let's consider this first statement. King Jesus rules over everything. When Jesus begins speaking to his disciples on this mountain in Galilee, he says, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now his declaration of authority here at this point in his ministry in Galilee doesn't mean that he had no authority before this time. So if you read through the Gospel of Matthew, if you study it the way we've done, you've seen 
many times Jesus' authority has been revealed in the gospel. In Matthew chapter 7, we were told that crowds of people were astonished that Jesus taught as one with authority. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said that he would heal a paralyzed man to show that he had authority to forgive sins. We also see that he had the authority to cast out demons and that he was able to give this authority to his own disciples so that they could go out and cast out demons in his name. He had such authority that even the winds and the seas obeyed him. Hmm. And he was able to calm the storm. So Jesus has always had authority. He wielded authority before his death and resurrection, and now he wields authority after his resurrection. But we also see that there is a change in Jesus' authority. Paul wrote in Romans 1 through 4, 1, 1 chapter, chapter 1, verse 4 that we just read, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power. There's something explicit and clear made about Jesus' authority with his resurrection. We might be able to characterize it like this. When he exercised with authority before he died, he did so as one who would finally submit to the authority of sinful men. And he would suffer death. But now he has been raised and he will never die again. And so now he wields authority as one who has conquered death once and for all. The risen Jesus will never be humiliated again. Amen. He will never again empty himself the way he did in the Incarnation. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, observes that the spheres in which Jesus now exercises authority are enlarged after his resurrection. So maybe before his resurrection we see Jesus demonstrating his authority on earth, but now he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. In his resurrection from the dead, he has disarmed the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, and he's put them to open shame. And so now he's the highly exalted one, given a name above every name, in heaven and on earth. So Jesus speaks now, after his resurrection, as ones whose power and authority are unassailable. His power and authority cannot be diminished. There are no holes or weak points in Jesus' armor. There are no weaknesses that Jesus has that can be exploited by an enemy. He has no blind spots. He is full of power and authority. Another way we see the authority of Christ is when he declares that disciples should be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been revealed as the Son of God. When, he's, when he was baptized at the beginning of his ministry, the voice from heaven pronounced him as the beloved Son. On the Mount of Transfiguration, God's, God calls on his Son and says they should listen to him. And then Peter confesses Jesus as the Son of the living God in Matthew chapter 16, when he makes his great confession. In the crucifixion, we saw that the Roman centurion confessed, surely this is the Son of God, after Jesus gave up his spirit and the earth shook. But now Jesus makes it clear that this title, Son of God, 
doesn't merely belong to him because he's a king in David's line. a passage in Philippians earlier, but I want you to listen to it explicitly from Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11. Paul is talking about Jesus. He tells us that Christ has emptied himself up by taking the form of a servant and obeying even to the point of death. And then he says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus deserves our worship. At some point in the future, everyone, without exception, will bow the knee to Jesus and they will give him the honor that he deserves. But disciples of Christ are those who willingly bow the knee to him now, who worship him who exalt him in the way he deserves. And this is exactly what we've seen in Matthew in the brief appearances of Christ after his resurrection. So when Christ meets and greets the women who were leaving the tomb, he says to them, greetings. And at the sight of Jesus and at the hearing of that one word, they bow down and worship Jesus. Here in our passage, we see that when the 11 saw Jesus on the mountain, they worshiped. A disciple is a worshiper. Now, there's some debate going on in verse 16 about what's going on when we read, or this is verse 17, they worshiped and some doubted. What's going on with the some that doubted? Uh, some, like D.A. Carson, argued that perhaps what we have here is the 11 worshiping, but perhaps there were some other disciples there who doubted, just like Thomas. They hadn't seen Jesus yet, and they were unsure of what's really going on. But then there are others who think, no, this Doubting is talking about the 11. Some of these 11 doubted, which would be surprising given that Jesus has already appeared to them once. But it may be that they were hesitant in their approach to Jesus because they remembered their betrayal of him. And they were still awaiting the, the kind of final verdict on them. They were still like Peter, awaiting a restoration from Jesus. So it's not clear exactly what's going on here, but we can understand why there were maybe still some uncertainty among the disciples as they come to meet the risen Christ. Whatever's going on there, we shouldn't let it obscure the point that the disciples were worshipers, and disciples today are worshipers. We worship Jesus. He deserves our worship because he's the only righteous servant who died and rose again. He deserves our worship because he's God's appointed king and he rules with justice and mercy. And he deserves our worship because he is the eternal son of God, the one who made us and then became like us, that he could die in our place to save us. What I want you to see is that the most basic and important question a person can ask themselves is, who do I worship? I've been helped by a scholar who's tried to kind of expand on this idea of worship to help us understand it by saying we can think of worship 
in terms of love, trust, and service. So another way to get at the question of who do you worship is to ask, who do I love? Who am I devoted to? Or we could put it like this in terms of trust. Where's my confidence? What am I trusting in as ultimate to save me? Or we could ask, who or what am I serving? To whom am I giving my obedience? And these things obviously don't have to be God, right? We can put our our trust in money or our own intelligence. We, We can serve the whims of others. But love, trust, and service, these are the three basic aspects of worship. And the true disciple loves and worships and serves Christ. Disciples trust Christ. Our confidence is in him and what he's done. We rely on Jesus as our redeemer. Disciples trust Christ. We believe his words are true and good. And disciples see themselves as servants of Christ. We're his servants. We obey him. We're here to do his work. Again, this has already been evident in the way the the women, when they're instructed, they go and do Christ's work. They carry the message that's given to them. We see it already here. The disciples who who bow down in worship, they're, they're in the midst of serving Christ. They're obeying him by going to Galilee. Disciples serve and obey Christ. We worship Christ through our obedience. And disciples love Christ. They're wholly devoted to him. They know his love for them. And they respond to him in love. So again, who do you worship? What do you worship? The Bible has a label for misplaced worship. So misplaced love and misplaced service and misplaced uh, trust, those are, that's called idolatry. All right? We don't have to bow down to a physical graven image to be participating in idolatry. So is your confidence in your wealth? Are you trusting in yourself to save yourself? Or maybe does a, a certain politician or political idea like, like freedom, does that have your love and devotion above all other loves? Or maybe you're a slave to what other people think of you. You're serving your own reputation. Who are you obeying? If you're having trouble even answering those questions and looking at your life in that way, I'd encourage you to pray and ask God, show me what I'm serving. What am I trusting in? What am I loving? The big question of life is, who am I worshiping? And can it really save me? In reality, we know that our wealth can't save us. If you're worshiping your wealth, you're going to be full of anxiety that that wealth is going to slip through your fingers. The new car gets dented. The stock market crashes and your portfolio is worthless. And what's more, no matter how confident you may be in your money, no matter how many good things your money has done for you, your money doesn't love you. It can't. We also know that we're powerless to save ourselves. No matter how much good we try to do or how, much, how many self-help books we might read, we know we're far from perfect. Even if we can be perfect from here on out, we can't go back in time and undo all the things we've already done that were wrong. Are you really going to put your confidence in yourself? 
Christ has come to call us away from misplaced worship. And he's come to reveal that he's the only one worthy of our worship. Jesus can save. All authority and power has been given to him. So look at him. Look to Jesus. He's the one who defeated death. He's the righteous one who has no sin of his own. And all power belonged to him, including the power to forgive your sin. And Jesus is good. Unlike money and possessions that cannot love you, he does love with perfect love. You can see his love in the way he gave his life for sinners. He loves us. The right way to respond to the all-powerful and perfectly loving Lord is to worship him by trusting in him. So if you're feeling the weight of this question today and it's starting to become clear to you, that you've not been a worshiper of Christ. God's convicting you now that you've been loving and trusting and obeying the wrong things. What I want you to hear is that the gospel is for you today. It's good that you're here listening to it. Christ came and died to forgive people like you. He forgives all of us of our false worship when we trust in him. He forgives us for the way we've rebelled and worshiped the wrong things. So look at the risen Christ. Consider his love for sinners. Even here in this passage, we see his love in that as his disciples approach him, hesitantly doubting, he comes to them and he speaks to them. He speaks to us today with the promise of forgiveness of sins. If you trust Jesus and his work, God will forgive you of your false worship and he will gladly welcome you into his family. So to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to repent of your misplaced worship, your misplaced trust in your own righteousness, and trust in Jesus' righteousness to pay for your sin. Disciples renounce the way we've been ruled by our sinful desires, and we submit to Christ. Disciples turn away from loving cruel masters who can't save us and would only enslave us, And we turn towards the one whose name is love. We worship Christ by believing his gospel. So Jesus is the king who's received all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the eternal son of God. He is worthy of all of our worship. And he is a good master. And so disciples worship Jesus. So King Jesus rules his people. But what does Jesus do as ruler? What does Jesus do with this authority that he's been given? Well, verse 19 tells us. Jesus sends his disciples to continue the work that he's begun. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. King Jesus sends his people. That's our second statement about Jesus. Now, as we look at this cluster of commands, the the main command, if you were to read the Greek, is make disciples. That's the only verb here that's in the imperative. That's the only explicit command. But in the rules of Greek grammar, all these other words that are participles, they get their commanding force by their linkage with this main command, make disciples. So go, baptize, teach. 
They all derive their command from this main command, make disciples. Jesus' command shows here his desire is for his kingdom to grow. That it wouldn't be limited just to these disciples there on the mountain in Galilee, but it would grow and expand that more disciples would be made, that more people would come to worship him. And in his wisdom, he's decided that he's going to accomplish this mission of making more disciples through these disciples. What a mysterious and wonderful thing that God has done to include us in his work of making disciples. Before we look at how King Jesus sending his disciples defines discipleship, we need to see that Jesus descends his, does, he sends his disciples to every nation. Jesus has come, he's told us already in Matthew, to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says that a couple of times in Matthew. But now we see that his mission isn't only limited to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, it's expanded to people from every nation, every group of people from the world. He's come to save. He's come to include them all as his worshipers. I think it's a uniquely American thing that when we read this command to every nation, we assume that we are ground zero, that it starts with us and radiates out. But of course, we have to remember the context in which Jesus gave these commands. He was, he was standing in, in Galilee, a historically uh, Israelite place, and he was giving this command probably to only Jewish disciples at this point. So Jesus is the king in David's line, the king of Israel, and so Israel is really the ground zero if we're going to talk in those terms. And the rest of us, we're all adopted sons and daughters of Abraham because of Jesus' work and the work of these Jewish disciples. By God's grace, Jesus told them to go and they went. And the gospel has spread and been passed down through centuries so that some disciple somewhere told you and me about Jesus. And we repented and believed and became worshipers of Jesus. We became disciples by faith in the gospel. And now we're commanded to take our part in that chain and to make disciples ourselves. We see here the gospel doesn't belong then to any earthly nation. It's not fundamentally a Jewish gospel or an American gospel. It's not a Chinese gospel or an Egyptian gospel or an Irish gospel or a Mexican gospel. It's Christ's gospel and it's for people of every nation. Any person, no matter where they are from, can be saved by Jesus. And that's why it's right that even though we weren't the first audience of these commands, it is right that we should see it as our responsibility to spread the gospel far and wide. And so that missionary impulse that says we should send gospel workers everywhere we can all over the world is right. But this command to go and make disciples of all nations isn't limited to kind of cross-cultural ministry. It involves all of our lives as Christian disciples. All people need the gospel, and if we have the gospel, then we should do all we can to make, other, make sure others get the gospel. But it is important that we don't confuse the gospel with our own American ideals or Western ideals or patriotism. The gospel is the good news that people from every nation can find salvation in Christ's name. It's the gospel for all people. With that said, the sending of Jesus leads to another essential characteristic of Jesus' disciples. 
Disciples are disciple makers. So Jesus sends his disciples to make disciples. That means disciples are disciples makers. The Christian's work is to help other people learn Christ. And as we've already seen, obedience or service is an essential part of what it means to worship. So we worship Christ by serving him and making disciples. He's giving us an explicit way we are to obey him. We obey him by making disciples. He sends, we go. He tells us, make disciples, and we seek to make them. Now, as soon as I say that, I have to immediately say, you and me can't make a disciple by ourselves. We don't have that kind of power. That's God's work. And we're going to talk about that in a minute under our last point about Jesus being with us. But we need to see that Jesus has given us this job of making disciples. That's the task that we are to be working on. And so if we're trying to come up with this definition of a disciple, a disciple according to the scriptures, according to Jesus' own commands, then we have to say that a disciple makes disciples. If you call yourself a disciple and you have no interest in making a disciple of others, you're speaking nonsense. There's really no room for a non-disciple-making disciple of Jesus. In our first point, we saw that false worshipers become true worshipers by believing the gospel. And so we need to see how we make disciples is by preaching the gospel. We proclaim the good news that Jesus is God and that he became man and that he obeyed to the point of death to pay for our sin. And then he rose from the dead and ascended to God's right hand. And that anyone who believes in him can be saved and have eternal life. We make disciples by preaching that message. It's by hearing that good news and responding by faith that people become disciples of Jesus. So we are to make disciples, and we make disciples by preaching the gospel. And that leads us to the rest of the commands here in this part of Jesus' speech to the disciples. Part of this disciple-making work is to baptize disciples and then to teach them to obey all that Christ commanded. So as part of our disciple-making work, the church should baptize those people who give evidence of being disciples of Christ. Baptism here shows us what a supernatural work that that disciple-making is. It symbolizes the way that God brings sinners from death to life, that he, he raises sinners from the dead by the power of Christ. We are raised with Christ. God's disciple-making work is a powerful, saving work. And disciples follow the Lord in baptism as a way to proclaim their repentance and faith. In baptism, a disciple announces to the world, we've turned away from our false gods to worship the one true God by faith in Jesus Christ. And this is all the work of God. So the act of baptism doesn't create a disciple, but the baptism is a sign that makes visible to the world the amazing thing that God has done in and through his people. We're to make disciples and we're to baptize those disciples. Jesus also says that we're to teach those who become disciples all that Christ commanded. The disciples were to pass on the words of Christ to others. So disciple-making is focused on the word of Christ. And this gives us another way to define discipleship. 
So under this point, we've seen disciples make disciples, but we also see that all disciples are learners and teachers. If we are really following Jesus, we are always learning to obey Jesus's commands and we're always teaching those commands to others. We're always learning Jesus and teaching Jesus. And we have to remember when we, when we talk about Jesus's commands, the chief command is believe the gospel. So it's not just law we're preaching. It's grace and law together. It's all of Christ's commands. Now, it may sound obvious to say that a Christian should be a learner and a teacher. But I think this can actually lead us to some uncomfortable places. So if you've been following Jesus for a long time, it can be tempting to think that you have nothing more to learn. But this requires us to see we have something to learn, all of us. Whether you've been following Jesus for a short time or a long, long time, we have something to learn, even though our pride might refuse to admit this. But we know God resists the proud. If you're following Jesus, you have things to learn. So what is it that you need to learn from Christ? To put it more pointedly, though, we should say, what is it that you need to learn from Christ's disciples? We might be okay with thinking, well, God has something to teach me. But God says here very plainly, he intends to use disciples to teach other disciples. So we should look around this room and think that the, the person sitting in the lawn chair across the room from me, they have something to teach me. They have something to teach me about Christ. This requires humility. Opening up our lives to correction and encouragement and rebuke to being vulnerable? Are we willing to learn Christ from each other? Are we willing to listen? Disciples are learners. And disciples are also teachers. I think this could also lead us to some uncomfortable places. I've noticed that churches that are full of new believers have lots of strange things going on. I have a good friend who pastors a church that God is blessed in evangelism, and they have lots of new believers. And this friend gets the strangest pastoral questions you will ever imagine. Things that perhaps we think are obvious to every Christian, new Christians often don't know. New believers will be immature. They will need to be taught Jesus. There will be lots of things they need to learn. Are we a church where a person can be a new believer and learn Christ? Are we a place where someone can grow? Are we known for our patience and extending grace to those who are growing? And if not, what are the barriers that might keep a person like that from feeling comfortable here? I'm not talking about excusing sin, but I'm talking about helping someone who's new to the faith grow to maturity. How can we grow in being that kind of a church? What things can we do for our church to help be a place where new believers can come and grow? Another way to ask this is to ask, are we really committed to obeying Christ? Are we really committed to teaching each other to obey all that Christ commanded here? Jesus' instructions here are not directed only to pastors or apostles or to paid gospel workers. Every disciple is a learner and a teacher. 
Now you may hear this and think, I'm no teacher. I can't get in front of a group of people and teach the Bible. But that's too narrow of a definition of teaching. You know, one way the Bible says that we all teach each other is when we gather together and sing. When I hear you sing, you're teaching me. You're edifying my faith. We get to teach each other each week when we confess our faith together. Those words are teaching words that we're saying together. And our voices united teaches us. So we teach each other in those ways. Every person is a learner and a teacher. We also teach each other when we talk after church and we go deeper than the weather or the Astros. We teach each other by opening up our lives and expressing the ways we're fighting against sin or, or sharing a way we, we were able to, to uh, obey Christ this week by sharing something encouraging that we received from God's word. We teach each other in those ways. We teach each other when we sit around the living room reading the Bible together, submitting to God's word and listening to it and letting it speak into our lives. Now, some of us will teach in groups, but that's not the norm for every Christian. We teach each other all the time. So what are you teaching? To encourage you in this, I, I dare you to have a spiritual conversation with a brother or sister in the church and not learn something. I think it's impossible to do. If you go just a little deeper and talk about what God is doing in your life, you will bless someone else and you will learn something from them. We have to admit these spiritual conversations, they don't happen by accident. They normally don't happen over email or text messages, although they can. They normally don't happen in the comment section of your Facebook posts. They do require some deliberate effort. They probably require the, the sacrifice of time and being with each other. They may cost you a bit of awkwardness as you bring up that thing in the conversation where everyone else is talking about the Astros. But I ask you, are you committed to obeying Christ in this area by teaching and learning? Are you committed to being a disciple in, this, in these ways? Probably more profoundly, we should ask, do we see this, teaching and learning, do we see this as the path of joy? That joy lies as we pursue this kind of life together. By laying down our lives to be learners and teachers, we will experience true, joyful life in Christ. Isn't that what Christ has promised us? If we lose our lives for Christ's sake, we will find it? Here's a specific way to lose your life for Christ's sake and find life. This is part of our service to Christ. It's part of our worship. So King Jesus sends his people to make disciples. Disciples go and make disciples. They make disciples by proclaiming the gospel. They make disciples as we learn and teach. Now I said a few minutes ago that we can't make disciples all by ourselves. Making disciples is God's work. And that brings us to the last thing Jesus says in Matthew. The last statement about Jesus we'll look at this morning. Jesus is with his people. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus ends with a promise. King Jesus is with us. He's with his people. R.T. France noted that in the Old Testament commissioning scenes, the assurance of God's presence was to empower his servants to fulfill the tasks he called them to. 
So what he's saying is this commissioning scene we see in, in Galilee, it's part of a kind of chain of scenes. We see going all the way back to Moses, at least. Maybe you could say all the way back to Abraham. So when God spoke to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, and he sent him to go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, Moses said, who am I that I should go? And the Lord's response was, but I will be with you. And you can find the same promise made to Joshua and to the prophet Jeremiah and even to others. The Lord promises to be with his servants and he does so to ensure that they will accomplish the thing that he called them to do. That's exactly what Jesus does here. He promises to be with his people as they go and make disciples. I think this highlights a way that we might slightly misinterpret Jesus' promises here. We might come to something true about Jesus, but miss the, the kind of punch. Because we could take this promise, I am with you, merely as a kind of point of personal comfort. God is with us, and we are not alone. Well, that's very true and very comforting. and We should preach that truth to each other. But we need to be careful in this context not to separate the promise of Jesus from the command that came before. He is with us to empower us to go and make disciples. He is with us as we preach the gospel. And the Spirit of Christ works through our preaching to open blind eyes and deaf ears. He is with us as we teach and obey all that he's commanded us. Praise the Lord that Christ is with us. But let's make sure we see that he is with us for these purposes. He is with us to accomplish his work in and through us. Of course, having said that, it's worth asking the question, how is Jesus with us if he's not with us? He's ascended to heaven. We can't see Jesus. I think this is probably one of the most uh, repeated conversations I have with young, my young children is, where is Jesus? I don't see him. Is he here? Is he in the van? Yes, <clears throat> but Christ is with us in a unique way. It's through the sending of his spirit. So this promise of Jesus to be with his people was specially fulfilled at Pentecost in the book of Acts. We read about it in Acts chapter 2. The risen Christ gave gifts to men. We confessed that earlier today. He gave the gift of his spirit to help them fulfill this mission. So this was true in a unique way. This pouring out of the spirit was true uniquely for Jesus' apostles. They had a special work in God's plan to, to lay the foundation of the church. And God used them and their associates to write the New Testament. God was with them in a special way. But we know that God is still with all of his people. This is the great promise of the new covenant, that God is with us. That God has made his home in our hearts. God is with us by the Holy Spirit. Paul says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That, that Christ has joined himself to us and we've been joined to him. For Paul, this is a reason for believers not to engage in sin with our bodies because Christ is part of us. We don't want to use the members of Christ as members of unrighteousness. We also see here that the Holy Spirit is not a mysterious, impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit binds us to Jesus and it binds, he binds Jesus to us. 
And so the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, fulfills Christ's promise to be with us. The Holy Spirit applies Christ's saving promises to our lives. So Christ is with us. King Jesus is with his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how does this last statement about Christ, that Christ sends his people and that Christ is with his people, how does that define a disciple for us? A disciple, then, is one who goes in Christ's power. A disciple is someone who goes in Christ's power. So we obeyed the command of Christ to go and make disciples, not in our own strength, but trusting in the promise of God. The disciples' disciple-making work is something that we can only do by faith. To make disciples is an act of faith. And we know this inherently when we go to preach the gospel to somebody. right? We, we feel nervous. We don't know how it's going to go. We don't know if we're going to be laughed at, or maybe if we're at work, if this gets back to HR, will they have a talk with us or fire us? We don't know how it's going to go if we preach the gospel. Many times and throughout history, we know that Christians have been persecuted and killed for preaching the gospel. To preach the gospel is an act of faith. Obeying this great commission is an act of faith. But we see throughout the scriptures, God's call for his people has always required faith. This was true for Abraham when he left his father in Ur to go to Canaan. He went trusting the promises of God. He didn't know all that was going to befall him there. He didn't know he was going to be attacked by the leaders of the city-states in Canaan. But he went where God told him to go, trusting in the promise of God to give him a land and a people. As we think about going in God's power, I think the example of Moses that we referred to earlier is, is helpful. Remember when God called them and, and Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? You know, God promised first, I'll be with you. Now you would think, well, that's where the matter ended. You know, Moses was happy with that answer. But that's not the story. From there, Moses keeps protesting. He says, they won't believe me. They won't believe that you've talked to me if I go and tell them that. So God provided these miraculous signs of turning the staff into a snake and putting his hand into his his robe. Well, that's not enough for Moses either. He says, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Now, I know that none of us are called like Moses was called in that unique time and place to lead a new exodus, but we can certainly relate to Moses' hesitancy. And what I want you to see is that the Lord has responded to us in the same way he's responded to Moses. He's promised to do the work. Listen to how, what he said to, to Moses. Who has made man's mouth? And who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. This statement of God here in Exodus is related to Jesus' statement that begins our passage. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I made your mouth. And whose words are we supposed to say? He's given us the words. They're Christ's words. It's the gospel. We can come up with all kinds of reasons 
why we can't make disciples. But just like God called Moses as the one who made his mouth, Jesus calls us as the one who made us. He's given us his gospel message. They are his words we are to teach. Now, we may feel very weak and very ill-equipped, just like Moses did. That feeling may never go away. But even so, we can be faithful and trust that God will accomplish his work. He's the one that opens blind eyes and deaf ears. He's done that for us, hasn't he? And he can do that through us as we preach the gospel. Going with God's power means that we will have a great sense of our own weakness. We shouldn't feel, I can do this on my own. I'm smart enough. I'm clever enough. I've got all the best arguments. I'm a good salesman. None of that should be our confidence. We go by faith in Christ. He has sent us. He is with us. He goes with us to do the work. If we will trust and obey him, he will teach us what to speak. And he will open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. What's more, we're better off than Moses was. You know, one thing about Moses, even though he had Aaron and others to help him, he was mainly alone. But as we go, we go as part of a whole host of disciples that God has called to this task and given his spirit. We're part of the church, universal. We're also part of Christ our Savior Baptist Church. What can God do with with 50 spirit-empowered people? A church full of resurrected people who have been sent on the same mission. God has raised us up. He's raised us up as part of his people and sent us out. We're surrounded by his great cloud of witnesses and we go to carry out Christ's calling, filled with Christ's spirit. This is how we need to understand our disciple-making work. We go with Christ's power and we go together with Christ's power. Not only do we go together, but we minister on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection. You know, when Moses was sent, the people were still enslaved to Pharaoh. And there were ten horrible plagues to endure before they were delivered. But our king has finished the work. He has broken Satan's power. The decisive blow against sin and death has been struck. The enemy's fortifications have been breached. And we're pouring through. So we are part of the cleanup operation that brings the mission to its end. It's our privilege to tell what Christ has done. We go in God's power, and so we should have confidence, not in ourselves, but in Christ who is with us, in our conquering King who is risen from the dead. Jesus promises to be with us. We go in his power. We go together, and we go as messengers of Christ's gospel. Brothers and sisters, we should have confidence as we take on this work of making disciples. Certainly, there will be discouragements. You're going to feel discouraged by how difficult it is to bring up weighty matters with your co-workers and neighbors. I've experienced this this, uh, discouragement lately as we've sat on the sidewalk with our neighbors and everything seems to come up, but I just can't figure out how do I get to the gospel from here? Parents, you're going to be discouraged by 
your children who yesterday were seeing Jesus loves me and today seem so far away from trusting Christ. We're going to get discouraged by our own failures, by the times when it seemed like the Lord teed it up for us and we chickened out. The answer to those discouragements is to look to this promise of Christ. He's with us. He forgives us even for our failures in evangelism. And he is used He is used to using imperfect people. That's the only kind of people God has ever had to do his work with, besides Jesus. He uses imperfect people to do his work. King Jesus sends us, and in his power, we go. He's given us this work to do, and so we should pray together that we will do it. The way Paul prayed in Romans chapter 1. We should pray trusting in the promise of God that he is with us and that he will accomplish his work. We see in this passage, this last passage of Matthew, that the gospel is the truth that transforms. It turns rebels into worshipers. It turns foolish and self-centered people into disciple makers who teach the words of Christ. It turns weak and fearful people into powerful weapons of the living God. It turns individuals who are alienated and sinners from every nation into one people of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Our Father, we can only be grateful for this gospel. This gospel has changed us. It has turned our fortunes. Aside from your love for us, we are hopeless and lost. But you have not left us in that way. You have found us in Christ. You have brought us to yourself. You've opened our blind eyes, unstopped our deaf ears. You've loosened our tongues to speak the truth of Christ. Father, thank you for the opportunity even today to teach each other in this worship service and to learn from each other. Father, we pray for your help to be bold, to know that Christ is with us, that he will do the work. We pray for fruit, that as we are bold and as we work together, we would see our neighbors come to faith in the gospel, that we would see family members who perhaps we've been praying for for years and thought had little hope, that they would soften to the gospel and hear and believe. We pray for the children in our church that you called us to raise, that we as parents would be faithful and that we as brothers and sisters would help each other to keep going and nurture them in the admonition of the Lord. Father, again, we thank you you've saved us. And Jesus, we thank you that you are with us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.